Hey guys, welcome to the macro trading flow. It's Andreas Steno speaking. I'm all by myself this week, sadly. Um, Alfonso is stuck in London without a microphone, but um, it doesn't mean that global macro is asleep, uh, rather the contrary. We've had uh, a CPI report from the US worth noticing. We have renewed pressure on Bank of Japan, and we've had interesting remarks uh, coming out of the European Central Bank, all amidst the Chinese reopening. And oh boy, what a start to the year we've had. Uh, European equities are celebrating like there is no tomorrow, and everything with a link to China uh, is rallying this week. Um, copper has seen almost a four sigma move. We see new highs um, in European equities with the link to China, in particular Germany, but also Eastern European countries with the link to China rally. And I find it interesting that we get such a celebration uh, on the back of this Chinese reopening, given that we still have fears of a recession ongoing in um, in parts of the West. So uh, let's dig into some of these themes. First of all, let me try to digest this US CPI report for you. It was essentially bang on consensus, um, both in core and headline terms. But if we look a bit beneath the surface, I actually find some interesting details to um, share with you. The overwhelming reason why we got a um, number in line with consensus was a, to me, a positive surprise on a monthly basis in the housing cost category. So the shelter cost. Um, the shelter cost rose by 0.8% on the month. That was a re-acceleration relative to the 0.6 that we saw the month prior. Uh, and a surprise to me and many others that the shelter category is once again re-accelerating. But this is obviously outdated uh, since the shelter component of the CPI is survey-based. So it essentially means that um, it is conducted via a survey and they only take a portion of the market on a monthly basis, allowing it to lack the actual developments in rents. Uh, so if we look at observed rents on a monthly basis, for example, the Silo index or the apartment list indicator, uh, I would actually argue that we already see um, at, at the very least, disinflation in rents, uh, but uh, maybe even deflation in rents in some areas in the U.S. And um, if you pair that with the overall conclusion from the CPI report, if we deduct the shelter component, then my best guess is that we already see falling prices on aggregate in the U.S. The CPI index X shelter for December um, dropped by 0.5% on the month. So outright deflation on the month. And we even have um, quote unquote deflation in, on a quarterly basis now if we deduct some of these sticky categories with, um, with a very lacking nature to the actual developments in the economy. So to me, this is beneath the surface a dovish CPI report. And I guess that is why we see this reaction in markets as well with uh, a, a decent price action in equities, even in the US alongside sliding bond yields um, as a consequence of this disinflation ongoing. And I think we have more downside in the inflation numbers coming up over the uh, course of the spring here. Uh, and if we allow my forward-looking models to include the silo index or the apartment list indicator instead of the uh, shelter cost component uh, of the CPI, then we are closing in on a territory that is below target. So below 2% in roughly six to nine months from now. So this is 
potentially a game changer for the Federal Reserve outlook a bit down the road. Uh, we had um, Barkin from the uh, FOMC out right after the CPI report with hints of 25 basis point hikes uh, over the course of the next couple of meetings. Uh, so I would at least be very hesitant to price in more than 25 basis points per meeting. Uh, and I can still see that we have um, an interest rate hike probability priced into the May meeting, which to me makes no sense given what we've heard from members of the committee. So all in all, I think it's a dovish report, even though it was bang on consensus on the surface. That leads me to Japan because the Japanese central bank is one of the few central banks still in a reactionary mode. Uh, you could argue that the European central bank is in the same kind of mode. But the reason is that the Japanese market still suffers from uh, contagion effects from what we saw in 2022 across other global bond markets. And right now, we again have this situation where the um, eight to nine year sector trades above the yield cap of 50 basis points. Bank of Japan needed to step in this week to cap the 10 year point again um, in an unscheduled way, which to me is a signal of the pressure uh, in the yield curve in Japan right now. And the release valve right now is obviously the Japanese yen. It looks like a reverse of the trend of 2022. Uh, it's a very rapid rise in the yen basically based on speculation that Bank of Japan will either have to abort this yield curve control fully or uh, at least um, increase the yield cap from 50 basis points to maybe 75 or maybe even a percent already uh, in the week that we have just ahead of us. And I've seen speculation whether Bank of Japan could decide to pull the rock from under this yield curve control already at this meeting. I have to admit that I would be very surprised to see Kuroda um, pulling the rock from under the yield curve control just ahead of the end of his term in April. I would rather expect the good old banking CEO rule uh, to hold in this case, which basically means that Kuroda will allow the new governor to take such a decision in case they want to take the decision. Uh, and that essentially means that the risk of a complete stop to yield curve control in Japan increases after Kuroda's term ends. But for now, Kuroda likely wants to ensure market functioning. And uh, the only way to at least signal that you're trying to um, restore market functioning is to increase the cap on the 10-year uh, uh, Japanese government bond yield and um, therefore this is something to watch for this week. Uh, I find a strong yen to be a trend that um, that is hard to fade at the current juncture. And one should remember that a stronger Japanese yen is typically a buy signal for US treasuries. Um, the reason being that uh, it takes some pressure off uh, the Bank of Japan in FX terms. Uh, they were forced to intervene against the weak Japanese yen last year. They will obviously not be forced to uh, intervene against the trend right now. Uh, and uh, that kind of allows for uh, U.S. Treasury um, strength on the back of it, since Bank of Japan will no longer uh, be sellers of dollar bonds. Uh, and I think that's um, an interesting backdrop for the outlook for the U.S. Treasury market, given that also uh, the Federal Reserve may be at least close to pausing uh, in a couple of uh, months from now. When it comes to the European Central Bank, uh, I find it rather interesting that um, 
they seem to be stuck in a discussion on interest rate hikes rather than um, adding to the momentum uh, in QT terms. So what I mean by that is that we've seen even hawks of the um, committee out this week saying that they prefer interest rate hikes to a swifter uh, rollout of the uh, balance sheet drawdown. Uh, and to me, that's a signal that um, peripheral countries prefer hikes to, um, to balance sheet policies. Uh, and that is to me the m most crystal clear signal you can get to um, to flatten the uh, yield curve in uh, in euros. Uh, so one of the traits that we've been talking about for three, four weeks in a row, the flattening trend between, for example, the one and 10 year space in Europe still holds true. Uh, and it's even emphasized by the communication from the European Central Bank this week. Elsewhere, China is reopening, uh, which is obviously the biggest story given that we see spillovers in, po in a positive sense to European equities, to industrial metals, and now even energy is playing catch up to this, that trend as well. Um, and if we look at this Chinese reopening, my best guess is that uh, base metals will uh, be on the receiving end of the positivity. It also means that Australia is a good pick short term, uh, maybe in particular versus New Zealand. Um, and uh, it means that highly sensitive European countries to exports to China will continue to fare well uh, for as long as this trend continues. Uh, and as of now, you don't really get the counter effect uh, from the West to an extent that will allow the market to sell off, in particular when we add to the equation that dollar liquidity is still um, doing fairly well uh, as a consequence of the uh, US Treasury um, unleashing cash on private banks as a consequence of the upcoming debt ceiling deadline. In particular, through February and March, we will see net liquidity additions from the US Treasury when they draw down their Treasury general account. So. <clears throat> Counterintuitively, um, the market is in a good mood, and um, the recession fears seem to to vein right now, even though I don't buy the soft landing narrative. But uh, it's probably a story for Q2 to really um, get these recession fears back in markets. That was all for the intro. I'm really looking forward to um, to reveal the guest of the week. He's an absolute legend in the hedge fund space. So uh, let's get to the interview with Steve Dropley. It is now our great pleasure to introduce the guest of the week at the macro trading floor. And uh, this week it's a legend. It's Steve Dropney, um, the founder of Clock Tower Group. Steve, it's an immense pleasure to host you. Thank you. And the pronunciation is Drobny with a strong O. Very important. Strong O. I mean, Steve, you can't show up like this. Do you know how many people butcher my surname and name every time I show up at the podcast? But okay, well, well, no, no, your, your name is easy. It's just Alf. I don't know whatever the rest of it is. <laughs> 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 totally fair. Now, uh, Steve, you are in the business of doing alternative investment, seeding new macro funds as well. So macro hedge funds are back to life, apparently in 2022 and in 2023. And I think they will be back to life further over the next five years. But why don't we reflect together and especially you enlighten us on how has the industry changed over the last 10 years? What's going on today in macro hedge fund space? that wasn't going on 10 years ago or vice versa. I mean, it seems like macro's back, but you know, we love to say that line macro's back. Um, it certainly feels like it's got a nice runway ahead of it for the next three, five, 10 years, who knows. Um, if you go back to 1990, early days of hedge funds, something like 70% of all hedge fund assets were macro. 
Obviously, that flipped a lot post-dot-com uh, bust. That's when equity long short had their day. And the last 10 years, it's been growth equity. And then eventually during COVID, the platforms, right? And why was it growth equity? Because rates went to zero after 08 effectively. Money became free. And it's been that way for over a decade, right? And that has changed. That's the big change, right? Money's no longer free. Money's no longer uh, pays zero. There's no longer stimulus. That trend has reversed and seems like it's going to stay reversed. Steve, if we look at the macro hedge fund industry, given this new trend in interest rates, what are some of the asset classes that you find particularly compelling from a macro perspective for these funds, given the environment that we're in? It's not really asset classes. I mean, it's 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 interest rates, it's commodities, it's currencies, it's der- it's those derivatives, it's volatility strategies. And I say neither one's really particularly compelling. All of them are compelling. And if you know how to trade them and use them and structure them, that is a unique skill set that went away during the last 10 years. The people that were good at this retired, got fired, lost their assets because no one cared. All they cared about was was growth equity because with rates at zero and stimulus and financial repression and all this stuff, the the authorities that be around the world were coordinatingly pushing people out the risk curve. And if you didn't get out the risk curve and were somewhat conservative or hedging or whatever, you got fired, right? And so you're either, you know, those people that know how to trade that shit are sitting in St. Bart's or uh, places like that. <laughs> yes. Now let's talk about people who know how to trade that shit, Steve, because you have interviewed, you have a relationship with them. Um, so I think it's going to be very, very important for our audience to understand what's the skill set of a successful macro hedge fund manager. Now, um, I definitely am not one, but my mentor is a guy that runs a lot of risk and he's uh, very gray haired, uh, 63, by, I think, by now. So he's one of the guys who has traded when those skills were required. And I've learned a thing of two from him, but I think you can teach us a bit more. What, are, what is the typical skill set of a good, successful macro hedge fund manager? I've written a couple of books that were interview books inspired by Market Wizards by Jack Schwager, which were great interview books from the late 80s, early 90s. And now books are passe and you guys are taking up the mantle of that. I mean, your weekly interview of macro traders, it's the same thing. One was in a book format. Now it's in video, podcast, audio format, right? Your, you know, hats off to you guys because it's much, I think, much easier to, to do a recorded interview and hit upload than it is to, you know, edit a chapter and put all that pain and misery into it. But anyway, what, a, <clears throat> what makes a good macro manager? I mean, look, macro is from macroeconomics, which was, which is also called the dismal science. And, you know, macro folks or economists always see the problems around the corner, the troubles up ahead. They're always like, oh, this is going to be a disaster. This is going to be a nightmare. This is going to blow us all up. This is going to bankrupt everyone. Whereas equity guys, especially tech equity guys, which was the furthest out the risk curve you can go, that's worked for the last 10 years are like optimists, right? They're like, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to disrupt the taxi world. I'm going to, I'm going to democratize housing. I'm going to... um, I don't know, create a new currency, <laughs> uh, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. But um, so being so I'd say like the skill of macro guys is that they're dismal scientists. They see problems up ahead. And as such, when they're planning their investment uh, portfolio, their plans, whatever, they think about worst case scenario. They plan for the worst and hope for the best. And it's all about risk management at the end of the day. Right. I don't think, 
you know, we were joking earlier before we hit record that everyone's an idiot. Uh, no one knows where the future is. And the future is it's just so reflexive and, and flexible. And, uh, you know, there are, what do you call them, uh, black swans that come out of left field that change everything. And as such, you can't really predict the future. You can only position for probabilities and make sure you don't lose everything if you're wrong, like some tech guys did last year, right? There are tech guys and crypto guys that are down 50, 75, 90%. Right? If you're down 90%, like it, you're never getting back, right? And so um, the scale is humility, uh, being a dismal scientist, planning for the worst and structuring for optionality and, and potentiality without, while not you know, getting your face ripped off. Steve, one of my good friends, Michael Guyatt, keeps repeating that there are no gurus, only cycles. But within the macro hedge fund strategy, do you find gurus around? Do you actually think that it's possible to create alpha over time? Gurus, uh, I mean, there's charlatan gurus, like people who hold themselves out as geniuses and, and sell books like me and, you know, uh, <laughs> Uh, go on CNBC uh, and um, promote their wares. Sure, that's that's one form of guru. I mean, manager gurus. Sure, there's people that have stood the test of time, like the legends in the macro space. I think you know may have some slow periods, but over time their compounded returns are such that they're positive and outperform the S and P and um, don't go bust. Really, which is kind of the key is staying in the game, right? And you know, those are the household names we all know. The household names, yes, these guys. Steve, and by the way, the household names go by, they're like celebrities, right? They're like, they just go by first name only. You can say Paul, Stan, Lewis, Alan, George, <laughs> and we all know who we're talking about. They're not the Beatles. They're the macro legends, right? Yes, those are the macro legends. But now, uh, Steve, you've also uh, written and had relationship, still has, uh, had relationship with um, some of these guys directly, right? So you see also the different style and approach that they have. And I want to dig a little bit deeper. By the way, I've read all your books. You know, we talked about it. I love them. They've been my school in risk management and macro. So for people who haven't read them, I mean, shame on you guys. Why are you even listening to the podcast in the first place? But I want to, for instance, talk about, even without making names specifically, but some of these guys that have impressed you the most, like maybe some horror stories or some fun stories of some of these guys that you have talked to handling certain periods, what comes to mind if you really have to exemplify that humility skill that you talked about before? I probably have a gajillion war stories. And you know, we also throw these macro events where uh, once or twice a year, we gather 50, 100 people to talk about best ideas and trades. And um, <clears throat> you know, there's a lot of war stories from there that should probably be like for a beer and in, uh, in in Copenhagen sometime later this year, as opposed to record on a podcast. But um, look, I think one thing I always tell managers is that, you know, one of the keys is staying open, right? You see hedge funds shut a lot. And especially over the last three years, a lot of hedge funds have shut down. Once you shut down, you you close the window of opportunity for you to, to you know, have a super successful long track, you know, track record. And the ability to just keep putting one foot in front of the other and staying open, even through like periods of like, you know, what do they say in baseball when you're like, when you're cold or you're, you're, you're not, you're not swinging right or whatever. Um, but, but having that perseverance is big. Um, you know, people don't know this, but like David Tepper, for example, 
I believe he has two years in his track record. Well, so first of all, one of the greatest traders of all time, average annual compound returns of plus 30%. If you look at the LCH, uh, this group in Switzerland does like most successful hedge fund managers ever and how much money they've made and pulled out. He's like, you know, top 10, if not top five. And he has had two years in his track where he was down more than 50%, right? And nowadays that would be a blow up and a shutdown and um, people would, investors would run and um, it'd be hard to keep going. D.E. Shaw, another one. D.E. Shaw was like out of the game in 98 or Citadel in 08. They were down 55%, right? So figure, figuring out a way to keep going and staying open, whether it's, you know, through the liquidity, through doing something with your investors, uh, running your own money small and just keep going. Like that's, those are all three amazing stories. So how, Steve, how do you actually ensure that investors don't run away when you start losing money? Um, it's a topic of relevance for many macro hedge fund managers, obviously. Uh, so. Do you have good stories and bad stories to tell around that topic? Yeah. I mean, I think it's like part of it is just building trust and relationship with your investors, right? And uh, in and having a big open line of communication and telling them what you're thinking, what you're doing, trying to be helpful to them, becoming important to their process. I mean, I talked about this, uh, I've talked about this before, but like Bridgewater has become in integral to all of their clients uh, by putting out their Bridgewater daily and being very consultative. And, and they are the most client service friendly organization out there in the hedge fund world. And as such, they are the largest hedge fund, right? Um, if you are a hermit and don't talk to your clients and treat them like shit and, and uh, view them as like a necessary evil, when you they're not going to give you a second chance and when you run into trouble. And so I've seen that. People who've had bad client relationships, when they run into trouble, it's over. And people who have done right by their investors and had a bad run, uh, they get a second chance or they get, you know, they get, they get a pass, so to speak. This episode is brought to you by Curve. Curve is a payments card company that empowers customers to control, maintain, and direct total control into their finances. By using Curve and adding your other cards to Curve's wallet, you unlock new value like cash flow management, self-driving money, and the ability to stack rewards. Guys, basically think of Curve like one unique credit card that helps you maximize your rewards. Rather than add another card to your wallet, Curve instead combines all your cards into one. It effectively helps you maximize your rewards. You also earn a 1% cashback on everything that you buy between now and the next six months. It is also useful to get on top of your cash flows by consolidating multiple credit cards into one single place. You are eligible to receive $20 in Curve Cash to your Curve account within 14 days of you downloading the Curve app through the referral link in the description list of the podcast and making your first transaction. So if you want to get your $20 in cash back, the referral link is in the description below the video. Pitch me now as if I am a listener to the macro trading floor and I want to start my own macro fund. I'm trading somewhere. I'm pretty bored with my institutional setup. I think I have a decent track record. I want to spin out and I want to go with a macro hedge fund. First of all, why would macro vol remain in the first place? Let's contextualize what happens after COVID. Why do you think macro vol will stay if you think it will stay? And why does it make sense to go for the chance of opening a macro fund? Well, let's, let's split that into two questions. So why does macro vol stay? Go back to the 70s. We had high inflation. Volcker comes in, raises interest rates. Um, and the world becomes globalized 
and China opens up and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you had interest rates and inflation go from 20% to zero to negative over, what is that, a 40-year period, right? That is an enormous tailwind. That makes Bill Gross look like a genius. That makes Warren Buffett look like the, the, the sage of Omaha. That makes um, Fidelity look like the greatest business ever built. But that was an enormous tailwind. Now, do you, be- if, do you believe interest rates are going to go from 20% to zero, which they've done, and then from zero to minus 20? No. If interest rates are minus 20, that's probably because Putin has unleashed his nuclear arsenal on the Netherlands, right? Um <laughs> So it's unlikely that you're going to get a 20% interest rate and inflation move like in your favor, so to speak. Um, And that's one. Two, uh, I think we can all agree that globalization and, um, you know, all that good stuff has ended. Like who's going to open up next, right? I think Marco, our chief strategist, Marco Papich, has been on your show, put out a piece saying we're at 100% capitalists in the world right now was the recent piece. Uh, so you can't get more than 100%, right? Um, and you're starting to see the world deglobalize, whether it's China or Brexit or Russia, Ukraine, uh, all kinds of examples of that. So that's that's another one. Um, and then we finally have inflation. Like we've been looking for inflation forever. We've been scared of it. Central banks have been coordinating their fight against inflation forever. And now they're not. They're, they're going the other way, right? They're trying to put it back, the genie back in the bottle and they're doing different stuff. Um, and um, yeah, so so all those things kind of point to um, the end of easy money, free money, uh, ri- risk on tailwind, right? Um, so then why do a macro hedge fund is your next question. Um, first of all, you shouldn't. <laughs> it's, it, it's really hard. Uh, yeah. No matter how well you do on Jan 1, the clock goes back to zero and you got to do it again. So there's no there's no rest there's no timeouts there's no there's no victory lap. Um, when people come to me and say I want to launch a macro fund, I say, well, you should just go open up a bar, or a restaurant, or or like finance a movie because you have that is you'll have as equal probability of success with those as you will with running a macro fund. That said, uh, the return on human capital is is the best in a hedge fund than anywhere in the world. And if you believe and you have this un, this burning desire that you have to have a hedge fund with your initials, you know, as the name of the fund and um, you can't do anything but then that's what you should do. Right. Um, and um, during COVID, it was really hard. And the last three years, we saw the rise of the platforms. So the multi-manager platforms that have effectively built a better mousetrap. They pass through all their fees to their investors. Investors are paying five to 10% plus management fee, which is insane. Then they're taking a performance fee off the top. And then, by the way, they give Alf and Andreas, they'll give you money to do your pod. I'll give you 500 bucks each. And I'm gonna, whatever cost you need, I'll give it to you, pass it through the investors. When you get your performance fee, I'll give it to you. I'll pass it through to the investors. Everything goes through to the investors. And then, um, I take my performance fee off the top. Great model. Um, some of them have really secured their capital. I think the reason for their success is partially um, investors at the end of the table, the end LPs, like the state pension funds and others, just don't want to take responsibility for their portfolio. They want to hire a consultant to have someone to blame. They want to give money to private equity that's locked up that gives them one print a year, which equals no vol. They want to give money to a platform 
who's going to spread it out. It's just diversification on top of a diversification. And it's kind of smart. It's non-recourse leverage, a lot of it, right? Um, but that doesn't matter for Alf and Andreas who want to launch their own hedge fund. Like that's that's all well and good that they're doing that, but that doesn't matter to you. Um, if you join a platform, it sounds great. They're going to give you the money, the seat, the screen, the ISDAs, the access, the strategists, anything you need. But they're also going to slap you with a one to two to five year non-compete. They're going to start deferring your, your comp. They're going to start charging you uh, money for your capital. And I think you're short. You take a platform job, you're short career risk, you're short contract risk. And I say contract risk because you start doing well, start building up the deferred, they're going to change your contract on you. It's going to get worse. And you're going to have to take it because you have no choice. You're short credit risk because someone else on the platform can blow up. Um, you're, you're short all kinds of stuff. And um, it has worked. I mean, I think their success might be partly a function of the zero rate easy money environment and the ability to leverage. Um that's not proven yet, but like we'll see how they perform with with rates at five, six, seven percent, um, and banks tightening up balance sheets and that kind of stuff. Anyway, all that means that if you really believe in yourself and you want your initials on the door and you want to run money, you should do it because there's no greater return on human capital. Steve, I often suffer from what I call megalomania light. Uh, so I want to start this hedge fund at some point. Then you I should. <laughs> but um, let me ask you. Uh, this question from a very practical perspective. Um, how do I get started if I don't want to join a platform? If I want to do this on my own, mm. do I need to find a billionaire who wants to play ball, ball or how do I get started? Yeah, the best way to do is find a billionaire to give you half a billion dollars in a swinging deal and set you up uh, and take no ownership in your business. And that has happened. Uh, you know, sometimes like uh, you've done well for another manager, they decide to retire and they just hand you the keys. So there are examples of that. Those are very hard deals to get, but if you can get it, good for you. Um, another way to do it is to call your rich uncle and your friends and pass the hat and raise five, 10, 15, 20 million dollars and get started. That's really hard these days. It's possible. I mean, if you look at like, I think Tudor started with seven million, like, you know, there's stories of these guys starting with really small sums of money, but these were back in the 80s, 90s when you could be a CTA. It was easier to be a CTA CPO. Um, less infrastructure, less cost. But to be a hedge fund today and have an ISDA, you got to get a bank to give you an ISDA. I was recently re-watching The Big Short, and there's the great scene where the um, uh, the Cornwall Capital guys go to J.P. Morgan or Goldman to try to get an ISDA, and like they're not going to yeah. get it. Um, so yeah, you probably need at least a hundred million dollars to get an ISDA and a connection. You know, um, so um, that that route, rich uncle will. Take you five years to get the first base, I think, and then maybe you make it. Um, and then you know the last route is, is to find a cedar. There's a lot less cedars, especially as the platforms have taken off. But um, you know we do it. We we look to seed one macro fund a year, uh, and we start them with a couple hundred million dollars, and we have a couple billion behind that from a syndicate of large pools of capital that we work with who want to help, they want to find the next manager, but they don't want to do the work and they don't want to do the effort. So we do it as a collective pool. It's not worth their time anyway. They're sitting in foreign locales. They have, you know, triple digit billions invested with the big names, the big private equity firms, the big real estate firms. Um, it is not worth their time or energy to run around and find 
Andreas or Alf and start you up and, and wait two to three years to see if you're any good. But that's something that we do in the macro space. And, and then there's other people that do it in credit and equities space. And, you know, there's a few few of us left out there hacking it out. So, Steve, is it fair to say that uh, the next trade is actually to long macro bowl and set up your own fund or something along these lines? It is a good trade if it works. You know, it's a hard trade. It takes a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, a lot of brain damage. But yeah, if that's your burning desire to do it, that is a great trade. Another great trade, you know, you guys asked in advance what what is, you know, a favorite trade or whatever right now. I just think cash is incredible right now. I've always loved cash. I think it's always something somewhere between 5 to 10, even 15% of your portfolio is where it should be. It has just such an option value embedded in it that is underpriced. And also, whenever anybody... Everybody wants cash. They don't have it. It's hard to build, right? You put money in the ground in venture, private equity, real estate. It's in there for 10 years. It's very hard to pivot and turn. Um, and it's funny. Everybody wants cash post-crisis, right? So 0910, people wanted liquidity in cash. Well, that's when you should have been invested in buying the liquid stuff and locking up. Da, 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 da. Um, late cycle, 1920, 21, 22. Nobody wanted cash. Everyone wanted, to, everyone wanted to lock up. You see endowments, foundations now that are 50% plus in private capital uh, markets with another 15, 20, 30% committed but uncalled. Like, that's crazy. Oh, my God. I mean, you, you actually get paid now. I was reflecting on it. To, you have an optionality on you and you get paid. Paid premium. Paid premium to so, own so an option. And so you, the calls you're going to get this year from some real estate developer, some company. I mean, look look at the uh, the Blackstone, the B REIT uh, UC deal that Jagdeep did with uh, John Gray. He's getting eleven and a quarter percent guaranteed with like downside protection and upside calls. Like that's that is an example of why you have cash. This episode is brought to you by Wisdom Tree. Wisdom Tree is a global ETF and ETP sponsor and asset manager founded in 2006 and with a track record of innovation and creating better ways to invest. Today, Wisdom Tree offers a broad range of differentiated ETFs and ETPs across equities, thematics, commodities, fixed income currencies, short and leveraged, and cryptocurrencies with over 80 billion in assets under management. For more information about Wisdom Tree, please visit wisdomtree.eu Steve um, fi final question from my side uh, and it's a potential big one to answer um, if macro hedge funds get back in fashion this decade how many can we actually swallow as an investment community how big is the space potentially do you have an idea about that? Yeah, I mean, back in the day, it was like there was something like 10,000 hedge funds, right? It was always a number that was bandied about when hedge funds were like two or three trillion. Um, today, who knows how many there are? I mean, you know, um, what is a hedge fund? Some guy with a Bloomberg in his garage just calls himself a hedge fund if he's got a Fidelity account. Yeah. I think the funny word that people use a lot, especially the last few years, is they call themselves a family office. And mm -hmm. I joke that a family office, that used to be your, your Charles Schwab account sitting in your spare bedroom in your undies. You know, looking at Tesla <laughs> shares during the day. Now it's called a family office, right? But anyway, hedge funds are kind of the same. You can call yourself a hedge fund, whether you are or aren't. Um, how many macro hedge funds can there be? As we said, like there's just been a lot of them have shut over the last two, three, five, ten years, and there's a few left. 
they're doing great. Um, demand is there. They're, they're raising assets. Um, is there room for more? Sure. Investor appetite is very strong. And the macro funds out there today that are that are doing well are at um, capacity or turning away capital. And you're even starting to see funds return capital. I think Citadel this year is returning like a quarter of the profits they made. And, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if if Ken Griffin is a family office like Mike Platt uh, is someday soon. And then there's, there is less room for investors to allocate to great macro traders. And so you'll see people leave Citadel and Bluecrest and others and launch funds if the investor demand is out there. And probably it will stay if we are right on the underlying condition and the buy 60-40 stuff and go to sleep and make 1.8 sharp. This actually was the number. Make 1.8 sharp rolling, sitting on this thing and doing nothing if not buying two ETFs. I don't think that time is going to come back anytime soon. If that is the case, Steve, then probably uh, some um, allocators are going to be looking into the hedge fund world. Um, one last thing before I let you go. Um, if people ever want to get in touch with you or, you know, talk about, hey, I want to set up a hedge fund, how do I reach out to Steve or anywhere they want to talk about with you, um, how can they reach you? Head our website, clocktowergroup.com, uh, or they can find Marco Papich on Twitter at geo underscore Papich and DM him. I'm not on Twitter, but I, I, maybe maybe Elon's going to force me to soon. But um, hit Marco, uh, call the office, hit our website. Um, love to chat. Last thing from my side, uh, read Steve's book, Inside the House of Money, by far. A, a great book for any macro. Investor. Actually, Alf, do you know I wrote a second book? You wrote a second book? I probably read that as well. No, no one knows about the second one. It was a total bust. It came out in 2010. It's called The Invisible Hands. I interviewed people that did well through 08, and, but they didn't want to put their name on it because they didn't want because we had Occupy Wall Street and everyone was losing their houses and they were like, I don't want to talk about making money. And it was lessons for endowments, foundations, family offices, pensions about how to manage their pools more like macro funds through crises. And uh, it's a great book, but it just it didn't catch. But look, look up Invisible Hands. But I'm going off for three days. Now I have a book to read. That's amazing. Thanks, Steve. And thanks for being here with us. Cool. Thanks, guys. Back at the macro trading floor, Andreas Steno speaking again. We had the pleasure uh, of hosting Steve Dropney, uh, the founder of Clock Tower Group um, and a guy with a tremendous network in the hedge fund industry. Um, his idea was very simple, uh, but maybe a bit hard to trade directly. Go long macro volatility over the course of the next, say, five to ten years. Uh, it will be a very different financial climate relative to the decade that is just behind us. Um, and to just assess that idea, first of all, well, I have to agree with Steve. Um, his point uh, on inflation and yields over the course of the last three to four decades relative to the decade ahead of us is crystal clear and uh, a point that I agree with. It is essentially impossible uh, to get the same kind of tailwind for risk assets, real estate, etc., from the yield market over the course of the next 10 years compared to what we've been seeing since, say, 1985 or thereabout. Um, you cannot imagine minus 10% or minus 20% yields, uh, at least not in nominal terms. Uh, worst case scenarios could bring real yields to such levels, but the tailwind automatically speaking from the um, 
the yield curve is is no longer there uh, and therefore macro skills will be back in fashion um, whether we will see a huge spike in macro hedge funds again over the course of the next three to five years remains to be seen but um, if not as bullish as Steve I at least lean the same way uh, for the macro hedge fund industry if we look at trades right now given this environment uh, I would argue that even if we have the um, the setup for long-term volatility in macro it's not necessarily equal to a good tactical trade um, and right now uh, given the emphasis that market markets put on the Chinese reopening uh, in inflation and volatility uh, rather seem to be fading and as a consequence of that I'm going to suggest a, um, a few ideas uh, that are linked to the Chinese reopening today so first of all uh, I think it makes sense to uh, look at Europe and the way to broadly reflect Chinese positivity in equity space if you're not willing to get involved directly in um, in Chinese stocks is either to buy Japanese stocks or to buy um, say German or Eastern European stocks reason being that uh, Germany and Eastern Europe um, they have uh, clear ties to to the Chinese supply chain uh, they also have clear ties to the Chinese industrial output uh, and uh, the same holds for Japan uh, the reason why Europe may be preferred relative to Japan uh, on such a bet is that the Japanese central bank is uh, currently stuck in a big mess due to the pressure seen in the Japanese yield curve so if you want to express this idea of going long European stocks as a consequence of the um, Chinese reopening uh, you can for example express it via the WTDF ETF uh, wisdom tree Europe equity usage ETF euro accumulated uh, that's one way of expressing a broad positivity on Europe as a consequence of this Chinese reopening otherwise you could express this uh, same idea via commodities um, and um, the broad way of expressing it is via the WTIC ETF uh, it's a commodity ETF from wisdom tree uh, measured in dollars um, if you want to have that exact exposure in euros instead so hedged um, against the dollar uh, the ETF is called WTEH um, those are three ways of expressing a positive view on China spilling over to economic activity in the West as well over the course of the next three to four months so let's have a look at whether this Chinese reopening bet actually holds um, my take is the following if you look at the Chinese credit impulse uh, the most important leading indicator out of China so the amount of credit available to the real economy in China we've seen a pickup over the course of the autumn and into the winter um, but it's not like a grand reopening cycle from a credit perspective the credit impulse is clearly not as immense as it's been in some of the other cycles that we've seen since 2010 out of China uh, and typically it requires a big impulse from the credit cycle in China to reignite the whole global cycle and what I fear this time around when we get um, say a few uh, months down the road is that the end consumer of all of the Chinese products is on the margin based in the West and if we get rising unemployment in the West which I find likely 
if we get slowing consumption in the West, as I find likely, um, it doesn't mean a whole lot that China is reopening since their end consumer is still suffering. So it helps from an inflation perspective. Um, and I truly net net consider this Chinese reopening to be disinflationary. Uh, I think that is why you can see slowing bond yields alongside rising metals and rising energy prices right now, since the Chinese reopening is a demand booster locally, while it is a supply booster globally uh, due to the nature of the uh, Chinese uh, economy. And ultimately, uh, the interesting package here is basically to be long US treasuries and maybe long base metals on this Chinese reopening. If you buy my story that China is a local demand booster and a global supply booster. Uh, that, that is essentially the takeaway I have on China right now, uh, but it is really interesting to see this immense pickup in, um, <laughs> in European stocks. Uh, it was quite the contrarian view just three, four weeks back uh, to expect German stocks to um, to outperform, uh, and if you look at it in um, in naked FX terms, Germany has outperformed the U.S. by at least 25% over the course of the uh, past three to six months. Uh, so it is quite a game changer relative to the outlook uh, for um, for equity positioning or equity allocation that we saw through 2020, 2021, and uh, parts of 22 as well. So I'll leave you with that for this week. Uh, hopefully we have Alfonso back from London next Sunday. Um, remember that you can find more about me, Andreas Steno, at stenoresearch.com, or else you can go to the energy cable at Substack. It is uh, an energy update I write uh, together with Warren Pies from 314 Research each and every week. Uh, we've um, been bang on right uh, on natural gas, electricity, and um, partly also on oil. Uh, into the beginning of the year here. Uh, so go have a look at Substack, the energy cable, if you want to know more about our price models for electricity, natural gas, and oil. Uh, otherwise, you can find more about me at stenoresearch.com. Um, and um, please go uh, have a look. We launched the um, full-on macro service 1st of January, and um, it is an interesting look, uh, if I'm allowed to, to say so. Otherwise, we'll be back next week uh, with a rundown of what happened in Japan, uh, because one thing you need to watch this week is the Bank of Japan, and you need to watch the developments in the Japanese yield curve. The release valve is currently the Japanese yen, and um, I'm not sure that the trade, long Japanese yen trade, is running on fumes yet. I actually think the trade has got legs. Um, so it's certainly one to watch also for global bond markets, and I hold the contrarian view that a strong yen is a positive for the U.S. Treasury market, um, even though it means slightly higher Japanese bond yields, because simple bond math uh, still leaves the U.S. Treasury market more or less uninvestable on an FX-hedged basis for a Japanese investor, and an increase of 25 or even 50 basis points to the 10-year yield cap from the Bank of Japan will not alter that equation yet, but the Strength of the trend in the Japanese yen is, on the other hand, a strong buy signal for the U.S. Treasury market. Um, that was it for this week. U.S. disinflation is still a trend, and beneath the surface of this U.S. CPI report, we have disinflationary trends very visible. Um, the shelter component is the only thing holding up the uh, index as of now, and um, we've even had 
Jay Powell admitting that he's looking at shelter as a lacking component. So he rather wants to focus on core services, ex-shelter. And even that component looks relatively disinflationary to what we saw just four to six months ago. That was all for the macro training for this week. My name is Andreas Stino. Thank you for watching or listening. Uh, we'll be back next Sunday with more on the macro trading floor.